brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with the military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. Be sure to enter the code UNITY at checkout to help support the podcast. And in support of women in developing countries, head over to CombatFlipFlops.com and become part of their unarmed forces today. And by Beneath. Starting with the first thing that you put on in the morning, Beneath inspires you to be your most authentic self. Get ready to experience increased comfort that radically outperforms anything that you've tried before while leaving minimal impact on Mother Earth. Use the code UNITY to get 15% off at checkout at Beneath.com. That's B-N-3-T-H.com. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's podcast. I'm super stoked to have this. Okay, this guy, Daniel Sharp, first off, let's just get this, let this get this out there. He runs Pop Smoke Media. And if you are not a dark minded ex military or active military member and you haven't heard of him, well, you need to go right now, like run, do not walk to that page because it is, is funny as hell. His page is full of dark humor and it, it, he gets me, he gets me deep in my soul. And I understand why this guy has over 200 and I think 50,000 followers, some ridiculous number, but everyone please welcome Daniel Sharp. He is a five deployment, 12 year U S Marine. Not only does he spend his life now advocating for vets, but he entertains the hell out of us. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Well, thank you for having me. I, uh, I got to say, I expected to be a lot more drunk for this. So maybe the, <laughs> the conversation will be a bit more lucid. Well, it's okay. Lucid conversations often work for most people. I prefer, I prefer a little mix kind of going on. But I did also forget today is a holiday here in Canada. Yeah. And no one's working except for me. So I was like, <laughs> okay, maybe I won't tie one on today. Maybe I'll just live my life and drive home safely. I feel like that might be a better decision for me. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe, right? But let's let's get into this, buddy. So I heard about you through, well, obviously Instagram based off of your incredible following, but I had been reposting your stuff now for like quite some time. And it it's hilarious. And it's not only hilarious in the memes and the way that you write, it's hilarious because it feels like somebody out there gets me besides me and the dark humor that you bring out and the way that you transcend Instagram into like people's homes who are really vets and first responders and, 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 you know, active military, we get you, we hear you and we love what you're doing. So please don't stop. But Jez, a friend of ours, it sounds like he's a mutual friend. Jez, um, Garrett Jones, who was on our show a little while back that we spoke with, whatever you got, everyone got to, got to hear and um, hear his story and a little bit about his writing. He was like, hey, you need to hit this guy up. He's funny as hell. You need to have him on your show. And so immediately I jumped all over that opportunity and I decided you're the guy that needs to come on this week. Well, see, uh, I, I got to say that uh, it's one of my least favorite things to hear because now there's that pressure. Like if I'm not hilarious and people are going to be like, oh, discredit on you, discredit on your family, discredit on your cow, <laughs> like. There's, there's a high bar to, to be set there. <laughs> That's okay. High bars are often achieved on this show. So don't worry. You'll be just fine. Well, um, I'm trying to find myself under the bar, you oh, know? Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. You know, kind of limbo under it. But my, my back's not what it was when I, when I first enlisted. So it's more of a low crawl now. 
I like it. Was it you or the other gentleman that's on your podcast? I was reading the beginning of his article and it was like, I gave the first, the, my, my best five years to the, my back's best five years to the military or something. Anyway, I was howling. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. That, that, it was worded. Yeah. That, I think that was AJ. I, um, I, I think there's, there's still some life left in me, but I, I realized that I have to be a bit more cautious now about things that I do. Uh, for example, like um, I went uh, snowboarding for the first time ever with my girlfriend on Valentine's Day, and I wrecked so hard that like I had sprained all the cartilage in my chest and it hurt for like a month. And I'm a Floridian, you know, so we, uh, you know, we don't we don't have snow. And I know that that's a bit crazy for our, our brothers and sisters to the north to to wrap their head around. But, you know, uh, the only reason we have a have a hockey team is because the rich people who retired from the north moved down to the South and they wanted a hockey team. So you know, they made an artificial uh, rink. <laughs> so I went snowboarding for the first time and I just ate it so hard. And I had to kind of come to terms with myself. Like I'm not a young man anymore. I'm not invincible. And uh, the snow is definitely not my friend. Oh, I hear you. Snow is a, it's a fickle bitch because it looks so welcoming and you see all the people coming down the mountain and they're just, you know, side to side yeah. everyone's smiling and happy and and then you try to go down and it's it's almost never the same I did it with snowboarding there's a reason I don't snowboard anymore I ski that's something you could do skiing yep. it's skiing. easy <laughs> yeah I, I don't know I just feel like I can't uh I can't really see myself being that happy because I'd just be terrified right the whole time yeah like you know uh Iraq and Afghanistan was one thing, but that mountain gave me PTSD. I don't know if I ever want to do that again. I would, you know what I'd like to see though, as I would love to see like a, because uh, I can picture you, if you're, if you're not um, watching this on YouTube, you should go watch it. You've got this sweet flock of hair. So I could picture you in um, the dumb and dumber onesie, the fluorescent color head to toe with just the hair at the top and like a big pair of, I'm just going to brass in unity frames because I'm going to do that. Um, I did that. That's right. And just rocking down that mountain. And I can just, I can picture it. I can just see it. And on the back, it's just a big pop smoke logo just going down. <laughs> Everybody expects you to wreck because of who you are. They just know yeah. you don't, you don't mix with snow well. Um, but yeah, so for, for you, you're, so you live in Florida right now, then that's where you're at. Well, actually, I, I moved up to uh, just south of Quantico, so that way I could be closer to the capital, make it a little easier when I uh, go up there to do advocacy. And, you know, you, you know, you've heard the old saying, like, if you know, if you don't like what's for dinner, you have to get in the kitchen. And uh, it kind of came to a realization that after all this time of advocating and kind of doing what I was like, if I if I wasn't closer to where a lot of these press conferences or meetings or uh, hearings were happening, then I was just that much further removed from being able to um, accurately report what's going on and you know, uh, exert any sort of uh, influence over it. And so for the, for the time being, I'm, I'm pretty close to DC, but uh, I just got back from an awesome trip, uh, kind of scouting what's next. I went to Texas, Colorado, Montana, and uh, beautiful areas, but Montana was cold. And I was just <laughs> saying, it's like, I don't know how people live north of here because this is miserable. It's still snowing in May. Like, what the hell? You're like, why aren't you done yet? I don't understand. There's, there should be this, uh, there should be this wetter, wetter, wetter. Wow. You can tell I've been <laughs> around my four-year-old for four days. I'm a little rusty here. We've been uh, up here in Canada with the weather we have on the West Coast. It's, it's very much mimics 
that West Coast weather kind of in the United States where it's, we're not getting the snow like the rest of the United States and Canada gets. We're kind of those weird odd ducks where we're like, it snowed this year for 32 seconds and lasted for three. Like it melts before it even hits the ground. But then once <laughs> you kind of go up to those, uh, you go up to those mountains and then she'll unleash hell on you there. So I try to just, I go up only to do physical sports and immediately leave at, at all costs. <laughs> um, I'm just so, of grievous yeah. bodily injury. Right. I know. And that's the thing is because that mountain has beaten the shit out of me so many times that I you think I'd have learned by now, but Hey, who, nope. who am I to, to challenge the mountain when she wants to kick your ass? She will. So you're <laughs> living, you're living closer to the capital to obviously do the, the, do the hard work, do the work that we talk a lot about on the show. Um, I know we joke around a lot, but we, you know, what we're doing, we do for a serious reason and it's advocacy and it's a mental health. And we talk about things that are maybe not talked about or spoken about in the way that they should be in, in the fashion. I would like to see it, but I know that you're doing a lot of work and I know that you're really involving yourself and interjecting yourselves in conversations and in things to do with not just, you know, the conversation, but legislation wise. And that's something I think is really important because we can scream all we want. We can talk about things all we want. We can post memes. We can do collaborative things. We can do whatever we want, but if we're not changing laws, we're not changing legislation. There's nothing that we can really do down the road for the people and the vets coming up. So can you tell me a little bit about what's coming on in your life outside of obviously your hilarious, you know, your hilarious view of what the world has of you. You're a very serious guy who does really important things. So let's hear about it. Well, um, one of one of the big issues that uh, we've, we've been advocating for recently um, has been the, uh, the toxic exposure that a lot of service members uh, encountered when they were in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and other places. It's been illegal to, to burn trash in mass and in residential areas in the US at least, uh, I believe since the either late 60s or early 70s. And, uh, but the fact of the matter was, is that the, the government thought that it was a good idea to, to you know, put troops living quarters right next to these massive burn pits and one of them was uh, was ten acres wide, and Jesus um, Christ. And you know, so it was a massive, massive pit. You know, uh, you know, several. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how that translates into to hockey rinks. I think that's like like seven or eight hockey rinks mm -hmm. wide. Okay, I got you. I follow. I track. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you take all the, the maple syrup of one you know great maple tree and spread it out. <laughs> I think that's about what it covers. But anyways, you know, they had these troops <laughs> sleeping right next to it. And a lot of them came down with um, you know, various illnesses. Like, I know it, I'm over here talking about cancers and you're laughing at maple syrup jokes. No, like, but it's just... important. No, it's important because, <laughs> I, no, listen, I think it's important. I'm, I'm not laughing at that. I'm laughing because I think it's important for people to understand that there is... There's a lightheartedness to this, but there's a serious yeah. conversation behind it. But some people, this is how they cope. And this is how I cope. And I think this yeah. is also how you and so many of us cope. We laugh at the dark shit. So there's nothing wrong with that. So continue about your cancer. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, hopefully it's not mine. Right? Um, not yours. Just yeah, everybody I, else we know. Yeah, unfortunately. And uh, what I did experience was I had three pulmonary embolisms or blood clots in my lungs at the Ooh. same time. And uh, a small part of my lung died, um, probably a lot smaller than you would originally uh, assume by that. I'm going to be honest with you. I kind of use that as a bit of a crutch. If I get winded, I'm like, ah, part of my lung died, but it's like the size of a grape. You know, it, it's, 
I mean, I'm like, it still counts, you know, like that was oxygen. I would have had in my bloodstream. Otherwise that's why I'm winded. But, <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the, the pulmonary embolisms put me in the hospital for a while. And the VA came back and said, well, we can't prove that it was because of this. Although, you know, you were, um, a young, relatively healthy male with, uh, with no prior, uh, history of this. We can't say that it was a result of this, although, you know, we're, we're going to treat you and give you medication for the rest of your life. We're not going to compensate you for it. And so I was fortunate in the fact where it only resulted where I just have to take a blood thinner. And there are a lot of other people out there where they had, um, you know, horrible reactions to the tuberculosis, the, um, the bronchitis developing into more serious things. People develop cancer of the lungs, the pancreas, uh, people develop cancer in their sinus glands. And uh, Edward Shank, he was one of the guys that uh, was up at our, our last event. He um, actually, a, a big part of his face um, became, uh, was ate away by the disease. And so, you know, he was, he was, you know, disfigured for that. He doesn't let it hold him back and he's become an advocate since, but, you know, we've had people uh, become very uh, ill and die as a result of this. And there, there's no presumptive to link these two things together to provide, uh, you know, treatment for these young able-bodied men and women who deserve, develop cancer and other ailments because of this. And, you know, the government's not taking care of it. So we've, uh, we've been doing our best to uh, get legislation pushed. Uh, congressman Raul Ruiz, he's a medical doctor. He's a congressman for, uh, or a representative for like the Palm Springs area of California. He um, got legislation passed to like stop burn pit use to start a study. We've been working with the VA to expand uh, the registry. We have the, um, the, uh, the presumptive for the warfighter bill that's in right now. And so hopefully that will get voted on and passed. But that's one of the big things. Another big issue that we've been tackling is not only um, mental health awareness, but then a lot of the things that kind of like uh, go into that because it's it's one thing to just say like, oh, this individual has mental health issues, but okay, what, what was the result of that? Right. Where they put in a position where they were um, in trouble financially and that led to a lot of stress and that, um, amplified a lot of the, the stress that they had from combat where they are in a situation where they were um, you know, assaulted or harassed. And, you know, that made things worse because, you know, PTSD isn't just, you know, from gunfights or explosions, you know, it could be a car wreck, it could be sexual assault, it could be, you know, nearly anything that's traumatic. And yeah. uh, so kind of uh, breaking the stigma around that, that it's like, if somebody has PTSD, it's not just because they were in a gunfight, like we had a dozen other things that happened to them. And then also, like, how do you um, tailor that kind of like health plan to them? So in a lot of ways, uh, we we try to take care of the body as far as like things like getting, um, telling people how to apply for benefits, telling people how to prepare themselves for when they go in to get their uh, disability compensation, use the other benefits that they have, and you know things like the 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 toxic exposure so you kind of you're preparing the body but at the same time you're preparing the mind and the soul where we uh will highlight uh nonprofits like warfighter scuba who uh, i went down there and I scuba dive with them for like a week and they take combat injured veterans and they give them a scuba trip to kind of teach them a new skill that they can use to help with their uh mitigate their their stress and then also like um the uh the uh the human nature hostel we just had uh ryan holt he was um 
a Marine who was on Naked and Afraid five times, and he runs a, a hostel up in Maine, and he does like nature retreats and stuff like that. And clothed? so it's kind of like, what's up? Clothed? Or um, are we naked think, on these as well? I think uh, the default setting is clothed, but okay. uh, I'm sure there's a waiver that could be signed. I appreciate that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if you're on Naked and Afraid that many times and you're running a program like that, there's going to be a minute where you're going to just have to be naked to satisfy everybody's like just curiosity and happiness. Sorry. <laughs> this man, just saying. Yeah. I, I mean, if you, if you know what you're getting into, uh, then uh, there, there shouldn't be a problem there. I think it's <laughs> just what, what got me is I was just a little alarmed by the amount of nudity that there was in the military. Right. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I was expecting a little bit, but it was a lot. Have you been around the special forces guys? Um, any of them? Oh, not, not so much. Uh, we, we worked okay. with some of them out on missions, but they, um, they, they didn't really camp with us, uh, cause there's, there's kind of a, a stereotype in the, uh, in the military where it's like, okay, well, uh, I, I was just a grunt. I, you know, straight leg infantry, uh, you know, I wasn't special forces or anything. And they kind of send us to places that are very austere, if you will, okay. as were a lot of my buddies who I've met after the fact who are special forces. They kind of got like the bougie like bases with like electricity and running water, you know, like we didn't have that shit. And no, <laughs> <laughs> no. no, but from from what I've heard from my, my uh, special forces friends, there were a lot of it was it was kind of like a little hedonistic where it's just silkies and like you know, weapons and so gay. They're so gay. <laughs> they're always they're no, and the reason I say that is my husband is not military, but he got the privilege to meet some of the I call them my pack, my my special operator friends that are out now. And the conversations, he's like, I cannot get over how much they just talk about each other's dicks. Like all the time. They're just yeah slapping and dick poking and comments made it is it's a very it's an odd I really know what to say it's an odd group of people who are just so gnarly to see them be so just flamboyant is flamboyant the word we're gonna look for here I think we'll yeah I think that. that's I think that's fitting uh particularly <laughs> because they're usually very well manicured you know <laughs> right I've noticed a lot of the special forces guys, you know, they have the hair gel, the manscaping, you know, like the, the, the body art and the, Brazilian, body art. <laughs> the, the Brazilian waxing and all that, you know? Oh, I love this so much. This is fantastic. This yeah. Is like fantastic. You, you pull up next to like a, like an army ranger or something like that in one of the bases and you look over at him and it's just like glossy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like I just have like I still have like a layer of dirt on me that just won't leave my pores. No, and, it's forever. It's permanent. You know, and you know, you you look over to the left, and there's you know the Navy Seal at the the urinal, and he is just like freshly waxed. And I'm like, bro, like how do you even manage? Like, <laughs> like I'm over here. I got like you know the <laughs> I got a six month bush, and it's just like, bro, like how do you even <laughs> find time? Like. They find the time. They, they, it's, it's interesting to watch because uh, those guys are, uh, you're right. They're smooth as shit. One of the guys I'm thinking of, as soon as you said, they look like glossy. The yeah. first girl that popped into my mind was Ige. He's a friend of mine and uh, <laughs> he'll be listening to this, but he, he would call him the flying Hawaiian. He's, uh, <clears throat> he's 
I think he's Japanese, Chinese, and Hawaiian. <clears throat> and he is, when he takes his shirt off, the first time I met him, I said, bro, do people call you like beefcakes? Cause like you look like that could be your nickname. Here's the kicker. He whips off his t-shirt has a beefcake tattoo, has a beefcake tattoo. I said, that's it forever. And he was like shiny. And he's like, yo, I'm going to university soon. I'm going to live in the dorms. And he's like a little bit older. And I said, you need to, number one, take your shirt off, like, like baby oil yourself, stupid, put a pair of silkies on, walk through the dorms as all the young moms and dads are dropping off their 17 year old daughters and sons just walk around and be like, yeah, I live here too. I'm living with your kids. I'm like, bad things are going to happen, my friend. Yeah. Um, maybe, uh, maybe he, he should spend a little bit more time with like the grad school students that way at the very least, you know, they're 18, you know? Right. That's why. <laughs> Thank God he's in a committed relationship. I tell you, because I'm like, this guy is going to, he's going to break some children here. He's not that old, but he's, he's old enough. He's seen some things. He's old enough. Yeah, which the uh, the disparity between ages when you're in the military, um, like I would be like 19 years old, just being screamed at by a 20 year old, and yeah. it's so it's so crazy to think that like uh, it's almost like you know when you were in like grade school and someone would be like, well, I'm the oldest, and I'm like, well, I'm five two, I'm like, yeah, but I'm five and three quarters, yeah, yeah well, I'm I'm five and seven eighths, you know, and it's just like okay, I've been in the military for 18 months. Well, I've been in the military for 24 months. So I have seniority, you know, like, okay, guy. Okay, guy. Because you were infantry, so you dealt with so mm. much of that shit. Yeah, um, we only had two NCOs in my platoon when we deployed. Everyone else was E3 and below. Oh, wow. And, yeah, so it, one, one of the most unique things I learned about the Marine Corps was that we're we're the youngest branch and we're also like the the lowest paid branch um where you know if you're not promoting us then you're not paying as much so you got an entire platoon of you know e3 uh lance corporal and below they're not paying us anything and then i i would see like the army roll through and like the dudes who are taking out their trash are like e4s and i'm like what like yeah at least at least pay me that well <laughs> no that's that would require too much effort and care to do something well, along those lines from the government but I, I can't complain too much because I, I'm well aware of the fact that I know the U.S. military has it a lot better than a lot of other countries uh, as yes. far as like our pay, our benefits, what we have afterwards. And so it kind of it kind of makes me feel a little ungrateful sometimes when I think about like the Afghan or the Iraq soldiers that, you know, they would get like their legs blown off and like sent home. And it's just like they don't even get like a compensation goat, you know, like <laughs> like the goat that they have to ride home on, like they have to send that back, you know. I don't even get to keep it no <laughs> no i mean depending if they were if they were an officer then they get to like milk the goat and make cheese before they send it back but if they were enlisted like that milk still better be there yeah and if it's not there mm -hmm. if it's not there you're gonna know it too yeah they're, co they're coming <laughs> to take your hand just to make up for the milk that you took you know you shouldn't have taken yeah, and so I always kind of felt bad because, like, we use those guys a lot as kind of like our cannon fodder. But like, hey, this is your country. Like, go kick that can or go through that door first, you know? Yeah. My Our um, our idea was just like, all right, if we go through this door, like, generally the first person through the door, if there's a bad guy, is going to be the one who gets shot. So better than, than us, you know? Always. It, it, it was like yeah. that for us, though, too. Even with, I mean, <clears throat> our pay was, I think our pay, I don't know. I think we got paid I want to say we got paid more than you guys, but the thing is, is I'm not hundred percent. So I can't say that, but 
from what I heard when I was there at the time, at least some of the Americans were paid less than us, but it depended. Obviously rank is a big thing. But then when you, I remember being outside the wire with, you know, the British and we had the Afghan national army with us. And I, I remember it so vividly because they'd be like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to go clear this. We're going to do that. And then they would pull up a couple if we had them. I mean, we didn't always have them with us. We had, you know, Terps with us or in maybe one ANA. And then we'd send them in the door first every time. And every single time, boom. Yeah. And I, I, I hate to say it, but better them than us. And um, we, uh, we, we did have a lot of ANA go down in my, my, Afghan deployment. We had some Iraq, uh, like uh, police officers and uh, army go down on those deployments, but we lost a lot of our Afghan soldiers. I was in the, uh, the Sangin district and uh, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag because like, sometimes you feel bad. You're like, Oh man, that dude was pretty cool. Like, you know, he, uh, you know, I would give him like you know $2 and he'd bring me back like, uh, like 12, like of the, the, the local energy drinks, you know, oh, God. <laughs> and like, a case of eggs but then there's other dudes that are like no nah, that guy was a dick i saw him with the chai boy like i'm glad we got blown up oh really yeah oh that's so it's so hard maybe i don't know if you want to touch on this but i think it's important because i've had brief conversations like i just had bishop brian bishop on and we were talking about this and very very briefly touched on this but you know you've got the what do you i don't know what the proper term is to even say for this to honestly i don't i don't even know how to describe it but it's you know you got thursday night is it was it Thursday night for you guys overseas that you would see all the boys and the Afghan? Yeah, I think it was the Man Love Thursdays. Man Love, yeah, like we had, yeah, it was something, yeah, it was a term like that. I don't remember. I was just like a Thursday gay night or something like it was outside the yeah. fobs, and they just stayed up against the fobs, and it was horrible. And I don't know how that's even a thing that still happens. And I, I, I don't know if you want. To, can we touch on that a little bit so people know what we're talking about? Do you mind kind of running us through that? Yeah, it, um, it's a very uh, traumatizing thing to, to go over there because of whatever your reasons. A lot of us joined because of the September 11 tax. And you kind of have to um, accept certain things that you see in cultures that are not of your own. Uh, for example, like in Iraq um, and in Afghanistan, to a, to a lesser extent of which I saw, uh, husbands would beat their wives for insubordination. And being a domestic violence uh, a survivor as a child, um, that was really hard for me to swallow because, you know, when I was a kid, I wasn't able to, you know, defend myself. But as an right. adult with, um, you know, a machine gun or a grenade launcher in my hand, like it'd be all too easy to step in. But, you know, you can't do that. And uh, so you, you also have to take in consideration that, you know, some people are about that, oh, well, I would have done it anyways. And, you know, that was that was my opinion, but, you know, some of the older guys will pull us aside and be like, yeah, you know, you might save them in the moment, but we're not going to be here forever. Once we leave this house, like you're leaving them alone. So um, the, particularly the, the Iraq men, like their prides were very easily wounded and it was very fragile masculinity um, to the fact where if you did anything to somehow make them look like less of a man, they were going to just kick the tar out of their wife as soon as you left. And so it was very, very narrow road that we had to kind of uh, to, to walk because, you know, we uh, we have to still do things in the area. And and also we don't want to make situations work because only when a fly lands on your testicles, you realize that a hammer is not the answer to every problem. 
And so then we, we moved to Afghanistan to me, which was more prevalent over there and to a lesser extent in Iraq, where you would see uh, older men uh, with young boys and they would be um, young they, too. Yeah. They, they would be uh, fairly amorous towards them, if you will. Um, it was more just kind of like a, like a lingering gaze, just kind of like, a, you know, a hand on the shoulder, a finger down the chin, stuff like that. And it just, it just didn't, it never set well. And you always hear rumors of, you know, things that would happen more than that. But, you know, I, I never personally saw it. And I just, uh, you know, you'd always hear the rumors and you hear people say like, yeah, there's their culture. And, you know, you try to take it with a grain of salt because you don't want to, um, you know, believe in, in things that uh, you're not able to prove. But right. uh, unfortunately, it was like um, it, it was the the rumor that the custom was is that um, that women were for breeding and men were for pleasure, and right. particularly like some of the, like the younger ones, and they would call them chai boys because they would send the young boy away and he'd come back with like a plateful of of tea, chai tea, and you know he'd go in the room and he'd come back out maybe like half an hour later looking uh, very disheartened, mm-hmm. and. We know, you know, we were never allowed, you know, to go investigate to see what were happening or anything like that. And so you, you see a lot of things that you're not necessarily okay with. And then being a very kind of like low down the, the totem pole, you're like, well, you know, what can I do about this? You know, it's a countrywide, culture-wide problem. And I'm just, you know, um, one young individual over here in the very bottom of the pecking order. Um, you know, because even as a squad leader, like you have to think like, you got captains, colonels, generals, you know, all these, you know, high ranking officers above you who aren't doing anything about it. And you, know, you kind of wonder, like, you know, what can you do? So you try to you know, put yourself in positions just to be a, a more observant and maybe try to dissuade things by your presence and not allow anything like that to happen within your eyesight. But, you know, none of us are Superman. We can't see everything. We can't be everywhere at once. And it's uh, it was it was a bit of um, uh, a bit of tough medicine to to accept that there are a lot of things that you don't agree with in other cultures that uh, that you can't change as an individual. Right, it's different when you hear about it versus obviously when you see it. I mean, the the problem I find with that is we when we get sent over to do certain things, whatever the mission may be, I mean, I wasn't really privy to what the hell I was doing. I was too, I'll say I was too young. Well, fuck, I was too young, but I was too low in the ranks to be told anything. And so, you know, there, there comes a time when you come across something along those lines. And I remember coming across a woman and realizing the whole household was women, except for one or two men, but yet most of the women were pregnant, but yet that was the father And so I remember having these conversations with the Terp trying to understand what I was witnessing because I personally hadn't been outside the wire yet. That was my first time when I was with the British and I wanted to know what I was looking at because I was seeing things, you know, with kids and I was seeing things with young girls that were pregnant that there's no way in hell these little kids should be pregnant, let alone, you know, living like this. And I just remember them being very candid about it. That's this is normal. This is normal behavior. When you're in the rural areas where there's no running water, there's no electricity, there's no internet, there's no school. They only learn from the mouth of, you know, the person that they're being told from. And so if, if somebody's telling you something your whole entire life, then obviously, you know, no different. And then you would expect no different. And 
And it comes to that point where you say, you know, you, you unfortunately had to go through a very traumatic situation early on in your life. And I'm very sorry that you had to be witness to that because I can't imagine being you deploying after knowing and seeing and hearing what you witnessed and then being held in that position again, in that helplessness where you're not able to prevent, stop, or, you know, really mitigate a situation you know, and the one time you're actually strong enough, the one time you're actually, you know, have enough weapons, the one time that you're actually able to stop it, you're kind of told not to. And I think a lot of the listeners value um, knowing what you're saying, because, you know, you, you see things in movies and TV, you see things on TV shows like Homeland, and you see them in like Zero Dark Thirty, and you, you get these blips of cultures that we, you know, we've invaded, and that we're, we're, I want to say attacking, but we're, we're trying to help or we're, we're doing whatever the mission may be at the time, but yet the ins and outs of what that looks like when you go into a country, you don't just, you, ha- you don't just take over. You have to learn customs. You have to learn ways of life. You have to learn why people react the way they react so that you know what they're going to do the next time they react. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a traumatic thing to witness, not from just a gunfire and a firefighter watching someone blow up standpoint. It's the nuances. It's the small nuances through tour life that people don't really grasp onto. Like for example, the you witnessing that or somebody witnessing a woman being stoned to death because she looked at a soldier in the eyes and her husband caught it. And that to them was grounds for death. I mean, it's, it's hard when you just don't hear about those nuances and you think it's all, you know, war gains and this and that, but then really what happens is you get there, it's the everyday stuff, it's the little stuff, it's the things you wouldn't have expected that you're not ready to cope with that really eat at you, I find. I don't know if that's a thing for you, but that was a big thing for me, for sure. No, I, I agree with that. And it's a, it's a very complex layered situation where oftentimes in uh, matters of war, it was the governments that disagreed, not necessarily the people. Right. And, so you'll go over there and you'll meet people who have no qualm with you whatsoever. Uh, you'll meet people who, you know, just understand the fact that this is um, outside of a lot of our controls. You'll meet other people there that, that absolutely hate you for being in their country. And, you know, if you had met them in a neutral place, they might've been, you know, uh, a great friend and uh, you know, somebody who was uh, very easy to get along with, but because you were there, you know, with weapons in their, their hometown, you know, they say, you know, just cause you have a gun doesn't make you right. Or how would you feel if, uh, if, you know, uh, an Iraqi battalion, you know, came to your hometown um, and you, you kind of have to, to take a step back and realize that a lot of these people that you're interacting with are just reacting to the situations that they were born into. Right. And, and so kind of separating the the person from the bad guy but at the same time you know the enemy have hides behind women and children they blend in to the population they run into crowds after throwing grenades at you they you know they they really use that to their advantage but to kind of not devolve into something that is irreparably damaged you have to keep a level of civility about you to understand like okay like you know not all the people over here are monsters not all of them are uh you know uh people you should be demonizing you know you you don't treat everyone like animals you don't go over there to oppress but rather to understand you know if you were in their situation how would you want an invading force to treat you and your family right it's a very difficult thing to do because you know the 
you know, you hear the people that just say, oh, just glass the whole area, you know, turn it into one big parking lot. Well, guy, like that's, that's just not reasonable. You know, if we're over there killing women and children, then we're no better than the people that were um, you know, claiming to be over there to stop. And so it was very difficult to try to separate those things. You have the dichotomy of like the cultural aspects that you don't agree with, but then also the idea that, you know, they're, they're just people trying to live their lives in their situation. And then also the, uh, the additional angle of the fact that the enemy is going to try to use that humanity against you. And if you, you know, you know, cave into that, now there's just more propaganda because you don't, you don't beat an insurgency by just recklessly killing people. You, you know, you, you try to gain the, the locals to your side and, you know, help them against you. Like when we had the, the Sunni awakening, in uh, 2007, that was a huge boom for us. That was, you know, really helped us in our causes. But then you look at like cities like Fallujah where you know, a bunch of uh, civilians got killed and they retaliated. So we you know, destroyed the city twice over, like, and then ISIS took it as soon as we left. Like it, it's mm-hmm. just that I think there are a lot of situations where you can kind of armchair quarterback it and be like, okay, we did good here and good there. But unfortunately, a lot of those lessons aren't being, uh, pushed forward because there's kind of like this glass that was put over a lot of these things that like oh yeah well it happened over there it doesn't affect me well guy like any one of those people that we you know jaded or disenfranchised could rise up to be the next stalin or the next you know pol pot or the next mao or saddam hussein or whatever mm-hmm. so it uh, there there are a lot a lot of things that uh, garrett and i have talked about that keep us up at night well, and, and so they should. And I think that's the difference, though, between civilian population, people who are either active duty or, or you know, retired or veteran status of, of mental health or of a physical injury or, you know, one of one of the many things that people walk out of the military with now. Um, it, it's troubling because we don't talk about it publicly or the, the, the mainstream media doesn't pop, talk about it publicly coming from the same standpoints that you just did they give it this this these are the bad people these are the people we need to go and protect ourselves from but when you look at the grand scheme and you kick a door open at three in the morning and you wonder why the mother's coming at you with sharp objects and small children are screaming at the top of their lungs and you don't see that side of it and if we were only able to talk about it from a humanitarian standpoint and try to educate the general public public or the civilian population with you know what really happens there and why the nuances are why the war is still going why you know why we do what we do why people die at the in the levels that they do it's it's there's so much misinformation there's so much lack of information there's so much um what's the other word i'm looking for we're we're just not sharing the truth in a in a way that most people can stomach understand and want to better it feels like because when you i don't know what it was like when you went into iraq because i've never been to iraq now i i did when i did deploy the americans that we were posted with at fall bramrod because that's where i was when we were in afghan and initially these guys had deployed to iraq before so a lot of these guys did like the first invasion or they did fallujah like the first fallujah and so i would talk to them about that and ask like what's the difference here and you know the cultures are very much the same. The one thing I did notice they did say a lot of is the aggression level was different with the men and from Iraq. So that goes to your point in stating that, you know, the, they get a little more butt hurt a little quickly. They, they hold and they hold their feelings to a different type of account, but 
there were still things happening in the country in Afghanistan that we were just not, or I was just not educated about initially going into the country, period. And if only I could maybe have understood a little more about what I was walking into culturally, the maybe the ramifications or the choices or the my words or you know a lot of different things might have been swayed or changed or different views and visions of people because they did such a beautiful job and I'm not sure if this happened to you please tell me if it did they did such a beautiful job of making you hate somebody you've never met yeah I get that uh and it's it, it was always the uh interesting the psychology that the Marine Corps would kind of try to and stow upon us or bestow upon us and where they would say like oh yeah you know like uh you know yeah hate the enemy and you know you're a, you know a savage or you know a hard dick dragon slayer you're over there to reap bodies and all that yeah. stuff but then they ha they have you read ender's game which is on the commandant's reading list which has a quote that specifically says and uh, in order to to defeat your enemy you must know your enemy and when you know your enemy to that extent you love your enemy Right. And so to defeat your enemy is to kill something that you love. And mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's like, I don't know what the fuck you guys want from me. You know, you, you take an 18 year old, 19 year old, you mm -hmm. send him somewhere that he's never been. You tell him, you know, that he's got to hate everyone that he kills, but at the same time, you got to win hearts and minds and um, you know, one block, you got to be kicking down doors and you know, frag grenading rooms. The next block, you got to be, collecting intelligence a block after that you got to be putting band-aids on knees and high-fiving kids and it's just like I, I think we really asked a lot of our military because you look at the conventional warfares it was easy enough to uh, distinguish who the enemy combatants were and doctrine right. showed that positions are seldom are seldomly lost because mm -hmm. they're physically unable to be held but rather because the commander decided in his own mind that that position could no longer be held and retreated or surrendered and so you look at a lot of these engagements and it's not like it was down to the last man. You know, you right. have these units that they would surrender, you know, thousands of troops. But then in Iraq, like you'd have a squad out and two or three, you know, insurgents would attack us and you would literally have to run them down and kill them all. The only way to get rid of these fleas, you know, were to, to kill them to the very last one. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's like now you got to deal with civilian populations. Oh, there's a CN, you know, um, uh, a CNN journalist who's going to call you a baby killer because you know you didn't know there were civilians in a building that you were taking fire from, and and so you get back as a twenty as a twenty year old, and you're not even legally old enough to have a beer yet, and everyone's got their opinion about the war. Everyone thinks they know what you need or um, how you should function. You have the people who have no idea what's going on, so they you know they ask you the most ridiculously insensitive questions and you know here you are and then boom you're alone in your barracks room and you're like fuck mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. and it all kind of just catches up and then they're like oh hey by the way you're deploying again in seven months mm -hmm. it's like yeah that feels like a smart decision to be made the problem is we're you're 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 so right when you say we've asked so much of the military but when you say the military, I think people forget that military is made up of reservist individuals who do it on the weekends yeah. and 17 and 18 year old and 19 year old kids who can't vote, can't drink, can't <laughs> barely fuck without getting slapped in the face by a parent trying not to get someone pregnant, but you'll put a gun in their hand and ask them to go 
kill innocent individuals or non-innocent individuals and think it's not going to have an effect and then you're going to you're going to rinse you're going to you know wash and you're going to repeat that shit with them until they just can't function anymore and then you're going to wonder why your taxes go up because the va has to pay out so many people to just keep them on the face of the earth because of what you just sent them to go and do and then while you're at it you get mainstream media like cnn and so many other platforms just saying the most heinous things but yet they'll they'll take the win when saddam's statue goes down they'll take the win oh we've yeah. done great things and we'll do all this but what was that person you know what was that unit doing before that what are they going to go and do after you think that's just a that's a blip in their day that's like oh well that happened that's fantastic let's roll out again tomorrow at the same time down the same roads and wonder why people are getting taken out left right and center the thing is is we've asked our kids our, our young generation kids to go do shit that we are, they were not equipped for. They're just not. And one of the most unique things about the, the way warfare is now is that there's a lot more um, direct connection. When I first deployed, it, it, the idea of where I was was just somewhere I hadn't heard about on the map. Like if mm -hmm. I could find an atlas, I could kind of tell you where I was and then as time went on, like I could go on Google, uh, Google Earth right now, and I could show you the street where my friend died. I could show you the, you know, the the house where you know this Marine got shot or this person got blown up. I could show you on a map specifically where all these things happened. And I can do that, you know, just from uh, my living room and, you know, with my, my phone in my hand. And so you kind of have this like direct connection. And I honestly don't think that Iraq and Afghanistan will be like like other conflicts where now you see you know, World War II troops, you know, they go back to, to the beaches of Normandy or uh, people will go back to Vietnam and, you know, they'll, they'll kind of like walk these places now that hostilities have ceased. But I don't know. I don't see I don't foresee that happening anytime soon with yeah. Iraq and Afghanistan. And. It's like there there wasn't that like victory parade, you know, there wasn't that 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 kind of like definitive moment with you know the uh you know the happy couples kissing each other and champagne and ticker tape parades and stuff like that you know there there was never that definitive close to what we have going on so like you know there's always kind of like that, that residual fear that you know what if this just gets work what if you know what if everything that we did was just in vain particularly when you look on the news and you see that, you know, ISIS reclaimed a city where three of your friends died. And it's like, what was it all for? Yeah, I've, I've heard that uh, same comment from several people about Fallujah in particular. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've heard, uh, you know, I, I get goosebumps when you say that because I've heard so many people, I heard a friend of mine say it when he was, you know, when he was in Afghanistan, say it about Fallujah. And I remember looking at him going like we we rolled through that place like twice and the first time we lost everyone and to hear them talk about it on the news like it was just it was it was it was a it felt like a waste of time it, it felt yeah. like what was it all for and i think that's hard for people to understand and i think it takes it takes vets having that deeper open conversation to really get the public to open their eyes and realize what you're saying what that actually means because like you said you can sit here on your phone and pull up exactly where so and so died or you can pull up exactly where you saw this happen and it's these places 
are unique because they have had war going on for centuries. It feels like these places are volatile. They're, they're filled with so much hate because everyone keeps fucking with them. Like we just don't let up on these countries and we haven't. And by we, I mean, just not even Western society, obviously with Russians and the Soviets. And, you know, there's people going into these countries and just reaping what they feel is the benefit and then just leaving. And then you, you forget that the, the six-year-old kid that watches dad get taken away with a bag over his head by some big, bad dudes and beards, those kids grow up and they grow up with a lot of hate in their heart. And they grew up with a lot of resentment and frustration. And then they start looking to who the hell did that. And then they start gravitating towards those groups. And so when we say, you know, oh, we're going to leave, we're going to do all this, we're going to do all that. You're exactly right. We're not going to be doing, you know, and you, you never know in 50 years from now, I highly doubt we'll be flying people like you and I over there when we're getting old and decrepit to do <laughs> a 75th anniversary. Like I got to do on D-Day. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to be doing that with my bros. I doubt we're going to be flying to Afghanistan to do much. But what I do know about those countries is that, you know, the attempts are there. There's, there are people that are trying to better the countries. But the problem is, is sometimes the outside influence outweighs the, the hatred and the strength and the just sheer anger that's left into that country every time we leave and decide to go in whenever we feel like. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I've um, I've done a fair bit of traveling in my day, and I've uh, I've been to Russia, I've been to Cuba, I've been to some places in South America, mm-hmm. and you um you, you once you start to see these cultures versus uh, past the lens of that of the the hate that has kind of been bred into you to think that oh these people are you know the enemies of democracy and you know they just want to take your freedom, and it's like a lot of these a lot of these people are just trying to make it. You know, they're just trying to feed their family. They're not any different than us. Um, and what it really comes down to is either the, the people who are in power have some sort of animosity or, you know, they're small extremist groups. And so it's unfair to kind of like demonize an entire culture for, country for the sins of a few. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. I, talk, I, spoke with, um, I spoke with the founder, one of the founders of Combat Flip Flops. Um, they sponsor our show. And I was chatting with him about this. And he works within the country to educate young girls for literacy with their company. And it's pretty spectacular what they did. And it, he really helped me view Afghanis in a different way. Because for me, I don't know if it, what it was like for you. I mean, you did a lot more deployments than I did. But I know you're right when you speak about the enemy and having to chase them down to the last person. Because there is this idea, especially in those countries, that the civilian population blend incredibly well with the extremist population. Yeah. And that's a huge factor in winning a war. And that's a huge factor in how you feel about something when you leave, because if this same person who's been super kind to you, that's been serving tea and sitting with you and then, (laughs) yeah, yeah. You know what I'm going to say? And then you find out a little later on that that ICOM radio was pinging like a motherfucker and there's a reason for it. You know, they all look when they all dress the same, the same people who are shooting you, that the same people are serving you tea. It's a little bit harder. It's a, it's a mind fuck. It's a yeah, mind fuck. So, you know, with these girls that he's working with, to, with the literacy, these are the people that are, I was speaking of that are living 
in the middle of nowhere in a rural area who have never been taught anything, they've never been taught to read, who have never been taught how to you know, think differently than whatever they're being shoved down their throat. It's a, it's a different thing when you start looking at them as those people as human beings, because for a little while there, you forget that they are just like us, where they're just people who have kids, who have needs, who have wants, who have families, who have husbands and wives, and they're in this situation. And at the same time, just because we have more money, more tools, more weaponry, more everything, we just, we go over and we, we just make the decision that that person's not going to be, you know, on the face of the earth anymore. Yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Um, I will say that um, I, I, I hope I'm never in that circumstance where I have to you know, be the one with an invading force in my backyard. But at the same time, it's like, fuck around and find out, guy. Like, yeah. you know, if I'm, if I'm just minding my business on a convoy and you want to come shoot at me, like you're going to get the 50 cal. Like, I, I don't yeah. know what to tell you, man. And that's a different, that's a completely different thing, man. That's a different yeah. thing. You start, so, you start it, you're going to find out. Yeah. And whether it's through fear, intimidation, coercion, you know, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking when it's like, yeah, you find, you see how young some of these, these kids were that were shooting at you. And, you know, you don't know if it was hate or, you know, religious zealot um, convincing them or uh, attempted vengeance for an older sibling that had been killed or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's like, man, like, dude, come on, Mac. I don't I don't know what what you thought was going to happen. I don't know what you know you thought was awaiting you in the afterlife. But, you know, you, you attack a superior force you know but larger better equipped better trained more resources and then it's like we got to spend twenty five thousand dollars killing somebody with one ak because you know we got to track them down we got to use all these resources we pin them we put a 500 pound bomb into the building now we got to mm -hmm. pay reparations and it's like mm -hmm. we know we're spending a ridiculous amount of money so i'm, I'm not terribly sad to see us go i know the, the drawdown from afghanistan is um is in full swing some of the people over there tell me that the uh, the post offices have been shut down, mm -hmm. and so you can't even send mail to the troops over there anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm not terribly sad. I just hope that our intelligence community do does a good job of, you know, trying to keep us safe after we we withdraw from the region. All I can do is hope. I mean, it's 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 hard when you learn. You look back and you learn all the little nuances that kind of went on before 9/11 happened, and the intelligence community and the maybe lack of sharing information and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of things that come out i'm hopeful that that doesn't you know be a thing that we're going to see down the road with continuous you know rollover it's like it, it almost feels like because afghan iraq happened and then we rolled right into afghanistan it just almost mm -hmm. like gave permission we were already deployed somewhere so we just keep rolling it into other countries and it just feels like as soon as you start messing with you know, an area like the Middle East, you're looking at a lot of different other issues here. You're looking at things with Iran, you're looking at things in the area that you maybe didn't realize we're going to have an effect on. And then that has a global effect and it just grows from there. And so I'm not, I'm not sad to see our people go. I'm, I'm hopeful, like you said, that this is going to be something that we can keep a better eye on, that we can protect ourselves from, that we can, you know, just hopefully start moving forward the thing that I'd love to see happen and that kind of comes back to the work you're doing is now that we're seeing the ramp down and, you know, let's, let's be honest and very straightforward. 
just because we're deploying, right? I mean, we're pulling out of there as a regular soldier's force, whether as a fighting force, don't for a second get it twisted that there's not going to be intelligence in that country that we're not going to yeah. know about. Like, don't, don't for a second think that the men in black disappear because they don't. <laughs> they, those guys have, are contractors for a reason. There's things going on in the world that we need to have eyes on, period. You don't need to necessarily have boots on the ground, but you need to have eyes. And so we're still hopefully going to be getting that overhaul of information to make better decisions. But what I am hopeful for now is seeing is people like you that are doing the work for the people that have just spent the last two decades of their lives, you know, the best part of their lives for most young people doing some horrific things. We're now making the time for, we're doing the work for, and we're seeing these people come home and they're, they're ready for the help. They need the help. And then there's guys like you. So when, when, when you see, you know, your fellow soldier come back and your friend come back or your, you know, somebody's family member come back and you, and you start to see, you know, maybe some troubling behavior and things like that. How does that help you make your decisions into what you're, you know, you're going to work, you know, towards advocacy wise and, and what you're trying to drive attention to. And how does, how does your mind work with that? What is your importance, you know, with now and the work you're doing? I feel that, uh, it, is incredibly important for people to develop their uh, network and their support system. That is not something that is necessarily uh, just gifted to you. Um, if you're an asshole, you're not going to have a lot of friends. Um, I, I hate to say it. You can't just get out of the military and just be shitty to everyone and, you know, wonder why nobody is reaching out to you when, you know, you got a pistol shanking in your hand and a bottle in the other at 2 a.m. Uh, so that, that is kind of on the individual. But right. it is it is important to to understand that nobody cares as much as your for your future success and uh, well being as you do, particularly leaving the military. So um, it's kind of um, it's like when you're you know going airborne and you're jumping out of a plane. Like the way that you exit the plane is very important. Mm -hmm. you know, the the way that you prepare. You know if you. Uh, don't have all your gear together if you don't you know clip your static line um, you know Problem. it's gonna it's gonna be a bit bumpy till your reserve comes out you know if you don't exit dynamically if your feet and knees aren't together you know if you don't uh, you know if you don't face into the wind like there's a lot of things that that are similar similarities to exiting the military so you have to acknowledge the fact that if you're still in the military you're going to come to a time and point where you realize you're going to get out now that's on you to prepare yourself as much as you possibly can. Save money, uh, start applying to things, uh, take, the, take the, the classes that are available to you, uh, start researching, uh, start telling your family you know, and their friends back home like to manage their expectations. Like you're not gonna be the same person that you were when you left four years ago or 12 years ago. And so kind of like uh, identifying potential pitfalls, ask people who have gotten out like, hey, what do you wish you did? Uh, what do you wish you, you knew before you got out? You know, there's plenty of people online. You can just go into the comic section on, you know, any one of my posts, you know, a new one comes up and you're like, hey, I'm getting out of the military. Does anyone have any advice or is anybody in Scottsdale, Arizona or whatever? You know, mm -hmm. and there's plenty of pages out there. Reach out to pages like mine. And then so that's kind of where you are there. You prepare your angle of trajectory is going to de determine how far you go before you land. Like artillery, like... <laughs> You know, the, the round goes a lot further if you aim it right, if you use the right fuse, if, you know, you're using right. the right conditions. And so people 
are just so focused on getting out that they forget like it's one of the it's arguably one of the biggest things that you're ever going to do in your life joining the military in my opinion is far easier because it's like a water slide it's right. a pipeline like you show up you they have a training schedule for you for all the basic training for your job training your unit has a deployment schedule and a training schedule like there there's a pathway there's there's not a pathway once you get out you can move to new zealand or go join the peace corps or you know wash your mouth out with buckshot like you can do anything you want once you get out of the military right. it's not like that once you join in so to me arguably saying leaving the military is much more of a culture shock than joining and because joining the military is a universal experience everybody who's standing next to you left and right is going to have the same experience more or less but once everybody gets out they kind of you know bomb burst in their own direction mm-hmm. so once you do exit uh, it is really important to kind of identify what you liked about the military and then try to find parallels to that in the civilian world for me i liked having a sense of uh, fulfillment and purpose that i felt like i was part of something bigger than myself that i was in a community that I was, um, that my opinions and my skills and my abilities were uh, appreciated and I had validation and job satisfaction and that. And so that kind of fed back into a lot of what I'm doing now where I feel like what I'm doing has a, a bit of a purpose to it and that people benefit from that versus if that's not necessarily your bag, then you know, find out what is, uh, what things do you need to be emotionally healthy and then you know, angle yourself towards that. Mm-hmm. And you um, you are almost in, it's solely responsible for your own well-being. And I know that's unfortunate to say, but you know, you can leave the horse to water, can't make him drink. Like I can post a thousand different resources over the course of the last five years. But if you don't click on that link, if you don't sign up for that therapy appointment, if you don't, you know, put the the bottle of painkillers down if you're drinking, you know, not mixing them, if you don't you know, do the things that it takes to ensure that you have a better lifestyle, then that's kind of on you. You, mm-hmm. um, you have to be the one to hike that rucksack. You're the one who has to, you know, take that burden to where it needs to be dropped off to release it. So if you're not the one who is actively telling yourself like, okay, hey, things will get better. Things will be okay. What do I need to do to improve my position? Like, you know, what books do I need to read? What podcasts do I need to listen to? Have I done meditation today? You know, maybe I should stop drinking as much if I know that's a problem for me. You know, maybe I should, um, you know, not be alone tonight if I'm scared I might hurt myself. Like these are all things that are inherently responsible to you. And so people will just launch themselves out of the military with, without filing for their benefits, without doing any sort of job research, without, you know, validating their uh, college credits, without applying to any colleges, without even having enough money for a security deposit. And then when they end up, you know, in a position where they're not satisfied, they go, oh, the, the government fucked me. No, buddy, you fucked yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, man. You, you were given all the opportunities in the world once you left the military. But if you ignore all the help that's out there, you can't blame anyone for yourself. It's just kind of like, yeah, you can always improve your position. And I'm not saying that things will be great or that you'll find complete satisfaction as soon as you leave. But if you take some of those steps that I said, I promise you, you'll be in a much better position than if you don't. It's interesting that you bring all of that up because I remember very vividly just when, when they said, you know, this is what's happening to you and you're medically, you're being medically released and that's your only option. I remember very vividly them putting a piece of paper in front of me saying, you can sign this right now and leave. Just sign this and you're done and you don't have to do anything else. 
but you get nothing. You don't get schooling. You don't get support. You don't get help. You don't get uh, accreditations for things. You just don't. And so, so many people are so quick to make that decision and say, I just want to be done with this shit so badly. They just yeah. sign off and then off they go. Fortunately, I had enough case managers around me to go, okay, yeah, you're not signing that. But it's few and far between. It's very, like, think about it. It's very few and far between. And if you're in a terrible mindset from the get-go, I can understand the struggle that it is to, to do all of those things. But like you said, you can only bring the horse to water. You can't make it drink. So I've been in those situations where you hear those vets talk. It's like, well, I didn't, I didn't know about this and I didn't know about that. It's like, well, did you do any research? Or did you just do Coke on the weekends? Like, did you do any research? Or did you just drink with your friends until we had to find you on the side of the, like the, the, the road? Like, what are you doing with your life? If you, if you think the military is so bad, then, then leave. But if you're going to leave and you're going to squawk to me about not having X, Y, and Z, and you just haven't put the work in, I don't want to hear about it. I want to know what you actually need and tell me what you've actually done to, in order to better your life and, and what you're going to do afterward. Yeah. The, the stuff with you and you getting out, because you did 12 years, you did five tours. At what point were you like, I'm done? This needs to be it for me. Um, I think it was, I, I did four in the Middle East, and then I did one to Guantanamo Bay. And Whoa. Whoa, back that shit up. I didn't know about that. Well, hit pause. You did one in Guantanamo mm -hmm. Bay? Yeah, I was the, uh, the liaison between the Navy and the Marine Corps for six months. And... Um, Although the, I think there was over 5,200 people on the, the base and only about 150 of them were Marines, but the Marines shot over 90% of the ammo that was being shot on the base. And, and so what had happened was, is, you know, the, the Navy was down there with their, uh, you know, their dependents and their kids, they have a school, you know, they. Yeah, Cuba's great. I like Cuba yeah. personally. Yeah. And. Uh, so it was uh, a shore side or not a shore side. It was a, a permanent duty station. As for the Marines, they would just send a platoon or two down there and they had a, uh, maybe a 12 person cadre down there to kind of keep everything uh, up and running. And so the, the Marine Corps uh, wanted to, to shoot the shoot on Christmas. And so that would mean that the Navy would have had to provide uh, range personnel to facilitate the range. And so when the, uh, the captain put in their request, you know, the, I, uh, the, the Navy department, they looked at it and they're like, you want to shoot on Christmas? And the captain was like, you mean Tuesday? <laughs> and so the Navy was like, absolutely not. Like if you, if you guys are going to be this, you know, have this level of jackassery, you're going to have to have your own people down here. And um, I think I was the second one to occupy that billet. And yeah, so they, <laughs> Yeah, so they, they got me and they sent me down there. And so it was it was my job to to be the liaison. Like I went and I sat in the Navy uh, range house. And so I would go and, you know, talk with the Marines and then, you know, communicate with them and bring it back to the Navy. I would be the person at uh, range control whenever they wanted to train. And, you know, I would kind of smooth over any bumps and stuff like that. And um, yeah, so that, uh, that, that was Guantanamo Bay. That was all of Guantanamo Bay. That's it. That's all of Guantanamo Bay. What was that like being down there? Because I'm sorry. I mean, I've been to Cuba. I'm because I'm Canadian. We never had that embargo where we weren't allowed to go down there at any point. Um, but I, I've been, I was going there since I was like 14 years old, I think was my first trip to Cuba. And, um, you know, I think it's a beautiful country with a very 
horrible back end that just stuck them into what felt like a time capsule. Yeah. Personally, it was very, very odd seeing that when you come from, you know, Western, Western living that's constantly changing and evolving and, and growing. And then you go back and you're like, you're in the fifties, you're like stuck, yeah. locked in the fifties. Um, Guantanamo Bay has an air about it. Uh, and I, I obviously know why, but what was that like for you, the ins and outs of, of, of being there and being on that base and, and kind of knowing what was going on now that we know a little more about Guantanamo Bay and we, you know, society knows a little bit more about what that means when you get taken to a site like that. Yeah. What was that like for you handling that? Well, um, it was the, it was honestly, the, it was the first deployment where I, I didn't get sent out with, you know, a, a loaded weapon and body armor. Right. And so that, uh, that, that was a unique experience. I mean, granted, you know, I had a, a little duty service weapon, but, you know, for, for the armory, but um, it, it wasn't, I wasn't like I was going out doing patrols or anything. We couldn't leave the base. And that's why I went back as a civilian when I got out so I could hang out in Havana and uh, <laughs> get daiquiris at uh, Ernie <laughs> Hemsworth statue but I, I went down there and it was it was a good time it was a lot of fun it was a bit of a culture shock to see how the navy works compared to the marines which I I'm a full advocate that the marine corps not only is a cult but it is the definition of Stockholm syndrome oh really yeah and okay. so when you see the other branches of the military and they don't do things the way that you do it's it's <laughs> it's kind of interesting but it was but beautiful yeah, the water was gorgeous, uh, crystal clear. You could see glass and you could go scuba diving or snorkeling, you could rent boats. And there was like little islands in the bay that you could go camp on. It was, it was, it was a good time. It, it sucked because, you know, you're in Cuba and you can't leave. And then um, you're, you're pretty much disconnected from the world. The, the internet was painfully slow and you had to use calling cards if you wanted to call mm -hmm. home. And so it was kind of like being deployed over in the Middle East again in that aspect, but the weather was a lot nicer and you could actually drink there. And I had just gotten back from uh, Guantanamo Bay and I had been denied promotion. They said that although I was completely qualified, you know, I was um, professional military education complete, you know, had a first class PT expert rifle range, uh, black belt martial arts, all the qualifications, you know, a dozen plus personal awards. They said that I had never been a drill instructor or a recruiter. And so I wasn't as competitive because I had deployed so many times. And Wait, you're not as competitive because you were really fucking good at your job and did actual job work and like actual experience and combat experience. But because you didn't sit at a desk and force high school students to join the military, you weren't qualified enough? And that's kind of when I realized that it was time to get out because once you get to a certain point in the military, they force you to become a company man. They force you to care more about your career than you do about your subordinates. They force you um, to play their game, if you will. And you kind of unfortunately see that where the people who have been in the longest, uh, they, they are just desperately trying not to get a bad fitness report. Uh, they, it's so competitive where if you just get one bad evaluation, you may never get promoted again. And oh, wow. uh, particularly with the enlisted, uh, 
the in the Marine Corps and the, the the staff NCOs, like as a staff sergeant, you know, you're competing against all the other staff sergeants, and you're going to be ranked. And so when the board comes, if your fitness report, you know, where they rank you in the Christmas tree, if you're not, you know, higher up, like you may miss the 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 cutoff or you may not get promoted. And so you kind of they they kind of really force you to become a company man where um, you're like middle management at that point, and now you're part of the institution. And so your loyalty uh, is more to the uh, military versus your subordinates. And I kind of, I kind of saw that precipice where I didn't fight it. I didn't appeal it. I didn't try to like, you know, stick around or extend or get a waiver or anything like that. I was just Mm -hmm. like, nope, it's time to get out. I, I don't see myself being comfortable with basically like, um, you know, giving my best effort, hoping that I get a, you know, um, a pat on the head. And saying like, okay, like, yeah, we'll, we'll give you the ability to continue servicing in your career. And it's like, no, I, I'm, I'm sure I'll be successful when I get out. I don't need this. I did right. this just because of patriotism, because of 9-11 and mm-hmm. because I, you know, I, I had felt uh, sympathy for, you know, all the Kurds that Saddam was, uh, was murdering with, uh, with nerve agents in Northern Iraq. And and you know everything that was going on, and so I got out. And my heart really goes out to the people who um, they stay in the military because they feel like that's the only thing that they can do. They get to a certain salary, and they look at their qualifications and their skill and their education, and they make the honest decision, like, "Hey, I can't get a job that pays this well if I get out." Right. Like I'm 28 years old. I'm you know 32 years old. Um, behind the curve. You know, if I get out, I'm gonna have to start over. I'm gonna have to take a pay cut. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. And the military knows that. That's of one of the reasons why, you know, they they use, uh, they cut pay as part of a punishment because they want to hurt you. They want to make you dependent on them. And, you know, they you know, they, they want you to, um, to have to rely on them for everything. And so if you get a bad evaluation, particularly in the higher ranks, like you're, you're you may not get promoted again, or it may set your promotions back two to three years. And that's, uh, it was at that moment where I kind of realized that the, uh, the ride, like it was my stop, you know, it was my time to get mm-hmm. off the, the ride. Mm-hmm. And cause I, I didn't want to do that anymore. And no disrespect to anybody who stays in, like, I know everybody has their own reason, but from my perspective, I kind of saw the wars coming to an end. And it's just like, I, I don't feel like participating in an institution that has stabbed me in the back at every possible opportunity any opportunity that they had to just be decent fucking human beings and every time you start to trust the marine corps again like some dumb shit would happen and and so i was like you know i i had my fun i did what i wanted to do i'm getting out i don't i don't miss the marine corps i miss the marines i miss the the individuals but it is an institution i think it's um extremely hypocritical i think it's mismanaged i think it's a very wasteful I think that there are a lot of, there's a lot of room for improvement. And I know that it's a little hypocritical in the aspect where you could say like, oh, well, if you don't like what's for dinner, get back in the kitchen, rank up, make the change. Well, it's like, well, I felt like I could have more change as a civilian. For example, like a Marine will say like, hey, you know, like our, our barracks AC has been out and they've been running up the chain of command for a month and nobody does anything about it. But oh. if I give that story to a newspaper and then, you oh. know, the front page of that is blasting the, the base commander, it gets fixed right away. 
Mm-hmm. And so true to form with everything, you have to, just like the military taught me, like you have to position yourself in the best way to shape your battlefield. And my loyalty uh, you know, will first and foremost always be to, you know, the, um, the men and women who actually serve and are putting their life in the line more so to the institution. And I felt like it could be, be in a position to better help a larger amount of people from the outside than if I had just stayed in as a squad leader with, you know, 13 people. Right. Right. And I, I think that's big of you though. I think that takes a specific type of person to do that because it's always much easier to just stay in your comfort zone rather than to change up a brute and literally become somebody different. I mean, fact of the matter is when you're in the military, that's your identity, whether you want to admit it or not, you're owned by the government at that point when you've yeah. signed those documents. So with people who are like, well, you can have an identity as well. It's like, fuck you. No, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't, my fucking hair had to be a certain way. Are you kidding me? There's no identity. Yeah. If they're telling you what you're can and cannot dress, like, of course there's a, there's that hold on you there. And I, and I understand that. But like I said, it takes a specific type of person to be able to look at the bigger picture, see where your, your skills can actually be used in a, in a much more beneficial way to do, to do good things. And so, uh, you know, I think that's um, admirable of you. And I think that takes a lot. But, uh, but what I do want to make sure that people know, though, from like listening to our conversation is really the work that you're doing to, to help, you know, the people that have been deployed. And, you know, some of those are your people, some of those are generations after you and for you to take on such a monumentous challenge not only from a uh you know the amount of people that are going to need the support from the exposure pits but against the government you know within these large scale corporation level type meetings you're dealing with some serious heavy hitters and you're the one that has to sit there and and argue the case that this is not okay and so what type of pressure does that put on you like mentally physically how is that affecting you in your day-to-day i feel that every time i walk into a room with people who are you know wealthier and more influential than me i uh i feel like it's it's uh it's kind of funny because the majority of my career has been memes if you will and right you know, once you gather an audience large enough, people are, are going to listen to what you have to say and people are going to want access to that. And you're going to be able to you know, shine a spotlight on issues that uh, deserve a bit more attention. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, I've found that like part of me is still kind of like that uh, PFC that gets happy because he found like unexpired M&Ms in his uh, <laughs> MRE, you know? And so like, I, I want to be like happy and like show my friends about my accomplishments, but at the same time, like, I don't want that to come off as braggadocious or uh, arrogant or anything like that. And so every time that I kind of um, find myself in a, in a cool situation, being able to do something awesome or make an influence or change, a small part of me is just kind of like giving a little middle finger to the Marine Corps, you know, I'm like, I feel like I'm a good glow up story after a breakup. You know, right? like clearly <laughs> the issue wasn't me. Like I'll be sitting there in a room with like a senator or like on a, on a Skype call with a congressman or something like that, talking about issues. And I think yeah. about the Marine Corps. I'm like, you gotta have a bad bitch, but you let me go. You oh know? my God. You're fucking hilarious. You know that, right? You should have been yeah. a comedian. Fuck the military, am. <laughs> bro. Well, you need to do stand up though. Your shit's tight. You're funny as hell. <laughs> 
And like, so, and think about it. This is your time now though. This is why, because you've got a whole generation of people that have all been deployed and didn't been to war. Your war jokes and your shit could just roll through like the next 20 years and you could just be ridiculously large for that. <laughs> well, I, uh, I definitely gotta, gotta keep working on that. Uh, we have um, a book coming out where um, if, if, and I was actually, when we were doing the pre-conference, I was going to ask you about this. If you'd like yeah. to donate, uh, all the proceeds are going to, to charity, but I'm asking uh, vets, particularly who are more so in the media aspect, if anybody wants to, to donate a chapter about some of their experience overseas. And I, I kind of want to make this amalgamation of stories in a book talking about kind of like some of the more uh, the more nuanced like first encounter stories like the first time that you know uh, a, a rescue diver had to jump in the water or the first time you know you, you took fire or the first time like uh, a firefighter had to go into a burning house like I'm, I'm collecting a bunch mm -hmm. of these stories and I'm publishing a book later on and the idea behind that is that we want to um, there are so many books out there of, you know, these amazing heroes and kind of like their story from start to finish. But mm -hmm. I feel like so many people don't realize that most of us are just average people who were put into extraordinary circumstances. And right. the, the time that the person, like the first time that the medal is tested, if you will, uh, that is such an important and pivotal moment in an individual's life because you won't ever be the same after that. You know, um, uh, a surgeon won't ever be the same after their first surgery, you know, uh, a grunt won't ever be the same after their first firefight. And mm -hmm. that's kind of like the moment where you kind of have that metaphoric cherry pop, you know, and it's like from then on, like you're a changed individual. And so I want to gather these stories to one, give nostalgia to people who have, you know, had that experience a long time ago, mm -hmm. uh, two, to kind of satisfy the hunger for the next generation who are coming up. Uh, who want to know what that's like. They want the experience, you know, they, they want the knowledge before they uh, are actually put in that circumstance. And then three, just to kind of educate the, um, the, uh, the public and the average uh, consumer, like what that situation is like. You may never want to be a cop or a firefighter, but you can still have an interest. What's that's like for the first day on the job? Well, not only that is it it opens up people's civilians eyes to what really happens and what that does to a person and it might give you a little bit of empathy when dealing with those people if they're in a specifically difficult situation that is maybe not something or some way you would have reacted but maybe they reacted a certain way and it might just open people's eyes a little tiny bit to what it means to do something that really should the, 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 there's a reason, let's be honest, there's a reason why not everybody joins the military. There's a reason why not everybody becomes a cop. There's a reason why not everybody becomes a firefighter. That shit is fucking hard. Anybody who yeah. says otherwise is, is out of their damn mind. And that, <laughs> and, that, and that moment, like you're speaking of, that moment is so important because I haven't even thought about that moment. But that moment there, I know exactly what you're talking about. But that changes a human being. That changes their trajectory of their life, how they feel, what they do, what they eat, what they can be around how they react to situations. I mean, that right there is such a pivotal moment in some human being's life and yeah. not just a, a military member, like you said. And so I, you let me know what you need for me on that front, man. I'm all over that. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. yeah once, once we do the, uh, the, the post wrap up green room, I'll, I'll let you know all the details, but um, yeah. I, I found that the, uh, the aspect that it's for charity 
is kind of uh, a good way to go about it. Cause you know, a lot of these, the, the people who have served, like they're very like stoic and like, you know, they, they don't want any attention. The deed was all not the glory. They just want to, mm-hmm. you know, die face down in the mud and silent soldierly <laughs> virtue. They don't want right. to be a bother, you know, just, you know, just, just, you know, donate my body to science and right? perhaps yeah. a plaque. My back. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps a plaque on a city bench, you know, like that. Yeah, that, if you're lucky. Yeah. Don't, don't make a bother for me, but you know, I, uh, I, I added that aspect out there just so that way it, uh, it makes them feel a little bit better. Like they're not just bragging about their own experience, but rather they're contributing to the overall goal of, you know, furthering our community advocate, avocation, education, entertainment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great though, too. And I think there's a, there is a, um, an acceptable amount of charity within that because you're, you're doing, you're fighting the good fight too. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's a, there's a difference of just writing a book and then just keeping all the proceeds. But when you're fighting the good fight and you're actively doing it in a way that's going to impact veterans, first responders and military for generations to come through legislation. I mean, nobody's going to squawk at that. There's no way in hell. And if they are, you can definitely send them my way and I'll give them an earful because there's no <laughs> reason why you shouldn't be getting that, um, people shouldn't be open to that idea of purchasing something based off of that because you are fighting the good fight. And mm-hmm. it, 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 go, it comes down to, you know, our people have spent the past 20 years. We've, we've sacrificed our kids and our, and our, you know, our way of life and our, and how we view war. I mean, up until then, Canada was involved in some things, but they were mm-hmm. very peacekeeping mission. I mean, we were in Bosnia, that wasn't peacekeeping, but we're in Bosnia, we were in Rwanda. We, you know, we have that rich history. You guys have that rich history. We have World War One, we have World War II, we got Korea, we got, you know, you've got all of the, all of these wars, but to see a generation, our generation, our age group, you know, fully just covered in the dust of Afghanistan that feels like it can't wash off. And to, to have these kids come back, who are still kids in my mind. And I'm never going to stop calling them kids either because I was a kid and only now being going on 32, am I able to realize I was a fucking child. (laughs) I was a five foot hundred pound blonde yelling child. There's nothing, there's no reason that should ever be going anywhere with a fucking gun. There's just no, there's no rhyme or reason. And so we keep sending our kids. And so I'm just, if anything, I'm grateful that we are going to slowly pull the fuck out of this. I mean, nobody likes a slow pullout, but we're going to do it for this <laughs> one. And so I'm, I'm glad to see it, you know, us leaving. I'm glad to see our people coming back, but I'm mostly, mostly glad and thankful that there are the people that saw what you saw, which is there can be more done. There can be a louder voice. And it can make a bigger long-term difference if you did it just a little bit differently. And that's where you come in. Um, You know, people that take on the government from a legislation standpoint, that takes so much patience, more patience than I have my entire existence to deal with individuals like the government. And so if you're going to be the guy to do it, you know, people are going to buy that book. They're going to donate. They're going to ramp up your cause. They're going to be there. They're going to walk up to the fucking, I was going to say parliament. I don't know what you guys call it, whatever your government housing is. And they're going to, they're going to walk you through this because 
it's, it's taken one, you know, it, it took you, it took the balls to stand up and start talking. And now that you've got the platform, you've got the following, you've got all of us behind you, pushing you right up that hill because it's, it's gotta take somebody like you to get this done. It really does. I, um, I, I would definitely say I'm very thankful that I'm, I'm not alone in this because there are, there are, you know, tons of people who've been doing this for a lot longer just for, Burn Pitch 360, they had been doing it for almost 10 years before I came on two years ago. Wow. And it, uh, it is wild. And two years ago, I met with uh, John Stewart from The Daily Show. And mm-hmm. he said... Yeah, he's a huge advocate for 9-11, yeah. isn't he? For the ground... Yep. Yeah, they got the Zizrova Act passed. And that's mm-hmm. essentially what we're just trying to do. But for the post-9-11 veterans and... I remember uh, being in the Capitol with him, and it was uh, Senator Gillibrand, uh, Congressman Ruiz, uh, and uh, a few nonprofits, and then me. And so, like, we're going around the room, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm the CEO of this company. I am, you know, the fellow of this representative. I'm, you know, this senator. I'm this person." They get to me, and I'm like, "I make memes," and everybody laugh, and I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> That's why I'm here. But it gets it done, buddy. But you got to understand, yeah. there's a lot of value in that. Um, it, there's a lot of healing in comedy. <laughs> and I think you know that. And I think yeah. your voice is useful. And then when you laugh and you're like, I make memes, but those memes are going to be remembered a lot more <laughs> than some of those people in that fucking room. So... Yeah. And John uh, said, you know, the, the longer this bill takes to pass, the cheaper it gets because veterans mm-hmm. are dying. Yep. And it's uh, it's unfortunate because he believes that uh, the reason why Congress has taken so long to pass some of these things is because if they wait long enough, it'll get much cheaper because a lot more of the veterans will be dead. Right. And if that's the kind of government that we have, that's that's horrifying. It is horrifying, but it gives me hope because there's people that are watchdogging that there's people that are saying, hey, this is unacceptable. You don't get to just wait this out. You don't get to wait for my friends to die to be able to address and pay attention to me. I think you're only going upwards with this. Um, if you're already in those rooms and you're already having those conversations with those people, you know, whether it's, you know, making jokes or what you're bringing the awareness factor to it in a big way that it just hadn't been before. I mean, look at, look at John and dealing with nine 11. I remember seeing blips of it on the news. That shit should have been plastered every which way people should have known what's going on. But unfortunately, it just wasn't making the government money. So, you know, the news isn't going to print it. They're not going to expose it. They're not going to talk about it. But eventually, they're going to have no choice because so many of us are coming home. And with so many issues from burn pits to PTSD to limbs loss. I mean, my God, if if they think for a single second that they can kind of keep their mouth shut, if they keep their mouth shut, we're going to keep our mouth shut. They've got another thing coming. Yeah, no, totally agreed. And um, you're right. And fortunately, it is a war of attrition. And I would say whether it's US or uh, Canada, uh, pay attention to the voting records of your representatives. And then, you know, when the time comes, if you can go to those city halls, if you can you know, be part of um, you know, any sort of a campaign promise, uh, campaign mm-hmm. events or whatever, uh, you know, hold, hold them to it. You know, if they say they're going to do one thing, 
and then they don't, you know, we, we have to hold it to hold them responsible. If they are not voting for the things that we believe deserve should be voted for, if they're not passing the legislation or the laws that are beneficial, then it's like, you know, they particularly, you know, with, with us, like if, you know, if you're not serving the people in your district, then, you know, you, you're going to get voted out. Like mm -hmm. it shouldn't be a popularity contest. It should be a matter of, um, being able to prove what you're doing. And then, you know, I think that there should be term limits, but that's just me. I don't think that'll change anytime soon, but, you know, somebody who has a history of, you know, voting against a certain thing for 20, 30 years, uh, particularly when they first came into office, the, the mindset, the, the way of thinking, um, you know, watching tech experts from various three letter agencies having to explain what PDFs are to, elected representatives that are old enough to get a senior citizen discount, like it's painful, you know? And I, I would say that uh, if, if anybody takes uh, anything away from this, inter from this episode that I have to say, at least, um, you know, you are directly responsible for improving your position. If you don't like something that's going on in your life, you got to change it. You got to be the, the force of change that you see in your world. If you don't like the dark thoughts that you're having, find a way to, um, to, to fight through those research, you know, the, uh, the treatment options, the, the positive thinking, the meditation, the outdoor sports, um, drug rehab. We have a huge opioid epidemic. Like there, if there's things in your life that you can identify that you don't like, whether they be within yourself, your community, your institution, your profession, uh, your surroundings, like you have the ability, like the light from the sun traveled so far so mm -hmm. far even at the speed of light it took seven minutes to get here just to be deprived by its final destination by you we all have a shadow on the wall which means we all exist and that we all can influence our environment and so if you have a shadow you have the ability to change the world around you and don't ever believe for a single second that you are not important enough to make big change for good and if you start to walk in that direction eventually you'll get there who knows what the road will look like along the way but you know if you have a destination left foot right foot repeat you know right. and then at the end of the day whether you make it there or you don't or you know you achieve part of your goal or all of it at the very least when you look in the mirror at the end of the day you could say at least i tried and no person whether they be veteran or civilian or anything like that should be discouraged from trying to make a positive change in their life Jesus Christ, Daniel. Wow. Buddy, I got in a trance there. I was so into what you're saying. I was just <laughs> like, get some. Yes, I love what you're saying because everything you're saying is so fucking true. We don't need to sit there and accept our position. We can make change by using our voice, by using our community, by looking around, just opening our fucking eyes. I'm yeah. so grateful, Daniel for the time that you've given me. I need everybody, just give everybody your social, please. Well, um, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find um, uh, Pop Smoke Media. Uh, please don't confuse me with the, uh, the recently deceased musician. Uh, I am <laughs> more, uh, I, I have a bit more um, dealings in the veteran community, if you will. So Pop Smoke Media. Uh, dot com. You can find the uh, Smoke Pit podcast. Uh, we're on pretty much all the major social media platforms. But uh, at the end of the day, 
it's uh, about entertaining, advocating, and educating. And so either you come to my page to, to laugh, to learn something, to share, fellow, uh, share fellowship, or at the very least, you know, if you see something relatable, send it along to five or six of your squaddies that you haven't talked to in a while, maybe spark up the conversation, see how they're doing. Because at the end of the day, you know, if we don't take care of our community, who will? Well, you're damn right. And that's what we're seeing. So I am, uh, there's a lot to take away from this conversation and uh, I won't lie. It's been, it's, it's been a goodie. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you, buddy. It's been, it's been one of my favorites. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode. Say bye to Daniel and check out Pop Smoke Media and we will chat with you all later.